What if the government had a device that provided a vivid, dreamlike access to your memories? What if it allowed you to remove traumatic events from your past? How might such a device further the human condition or corrupt it? Would you trust Uncle Sam with the deepest parts of your mind? This is Fantastical Truth, the podcast from lorehaven.com, bringing you the best in science fiction and fantasy from Christian authors. I'm Zachary Russell, and I'm flying solo today, and this is episode 114. What if the abolition of man became a political thriller? We'll be talking about the testimony of Calvin Lewis with author Daniel Friend. My co-host Stephen Burnett is traveling for the FPEA conference, that's the Florida Parent Educator Association. It's a huge gathering of homeschool families in the Sunshine State. And about that conference, Stephen recently wrote on our Lorehaven Instagram page, quote, hundreds of fan families gathered the best fantastical fiction at the Realm Makers bookstore booth yesterday at FPEA here in Orlando. Today marks day three of the big event expected to become even busier. We have the dragons, robots, magic, and occasional spaceships, all from Christian authors. And we also have the squirrels, end quote. That's right. Mike Naraki, the guest on our previous episode, was also there at FPEA. And uh, there's a lot more stories uh, on our Instagram page there about him. And one of our uh, followers on Instagram, this is at bookstruckph, commented, quote, Oh, how I wish that kind of event be also held here in the Philippines. It looks so awesome, end quote. So that is just so cool right there, by the way, that we're making connections with people in Florida and the Philippines. And, you know, this hunger for Christian fantastical fiction is global. Well, Stephen, will have a lot more to share about this and FPA on our next episode. Today, we're going to be talking about something really, really special because it's not just a book, it's an audio drama. And we're going to hear a clip from that in just a minute. But first, our sponsor this month is the Realm Makers 2022 Conference. Are you excited to take the next step in your speculative fiction journey? No, not an actual trip to space, time travel, or forging your own sword. Join us for Realm Makers 2022. This year's annual writers conference will again offer the event in person in Atlantic City and live online. So even if you're not ready to travel in July, you can still see the teaching in real time. Every class will be live streamed for our virtual attendees. Whether attending in Atlantic City or online, all attendees will have the chance to connect on the Realm Sphere in a dedicated conference space in our online community. Realm Makers 2022 is an amazing value because this year, Every attendee gets access to replays of every class available through the Realm Sphere. No matter how you attend, if you have a manuscript you want to pitch to our participating agents and editors, you will be able to do so. And you can register for that conference at realmmakers.com. Now let's go into our main topic, a sci-fi political thriller presented as a theatrical podcast. The big idea here is, what if the abolition of man was a fast-paced novel. You may have heard that this classic book by C.S. Lewis became one of his science fiction novels, That Hideous Strength. So it's going to be fun to explore another fictional form that Lewis's ideas can take. Here's the trailer for the full cast audio version of this story, The Testimony of Calvin Lewis. 
When I opened my eyes, I found myself standing somewhere akin to the promised land, otherwise known as the Texas Hill Country. There's a lot to take in, but you shouldn't worry about that right now. The device you're using was brought to you by young August, so you might see that everything he tells you is true. What he showed me there was unlike anything I had ever seen before, yet it still somehow felt more real than what we know as waking reality. Senator Lewis? Secretary Julia Rorwood of the Health and Human Services murdered a man. There are some good ways of dealing with bad memories. We're calling it Project Uberman. August, you must be careful. There are other anomalies you may encounter. Each moment that he came within a few seconds of death, the soldier brought his head up again. I wasn't even awake, so how could this be in my memories? I think there's some major problems with this therapy. Perhaps there's more to your memories than you yet realize. How do you know that going through my memories will help solve anything? We've had experts analyze the matter thoroughly. You won't regret it. I was indeed shown all that had happened August leading up to our providential meeting. This is my testimony of what I saw. And I see the author of that story joining us now in the Lorehaven studio, arriving with his very own government-issued Uberman device. Well, Daniel Friend has just arrived, and he is the writer and producer of The Testimony of Calvin Lewis, a novel to be published in the fall of 2022, and he is first released as a theatrical podcast. His story was inspired by C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man, as he worked with a group to write and publish A Compass for Deep Heaven, Navigating the C.S. Lewis Ransom Trilogy. He currently works as a reporter for The Texan in Austin. Daniel, thanks so much for joining us today on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for letting me on, Zach. This is so cool to to get to be with you after spending some time uh, working together. So yeah, it's, it's great, it's great, great to know your local writers. So yeah, uh, so tell us about the abolition of man. Let's just start right there. How did that inspire you? I, I have yet to read the abolition mm-hmm. of man. It's I, I feel like a bad Christian because I've only really read uh, Mere Christianity and uh, Screw Tape Letters, and that's about it. And I actually have some other C.S. Lewis books that are of course, on my gigantic to-be-read pile. But tell me, generally, what is The Abolition of Man about? Yeah, The Abolition of Man is just a fascinating book. Um, It's not that long. It's not too hard to get into um, as far as the length. It's when you start getting through some uh, a little bit complicated ideas to chew through and trying to read some of these sentences. You have to read them over a few times and say, well, what what in the world did he mean? But uh, at the end of the day, The Abolition of Man is really... C.S. Lewis's treatise on objective value. You could call it natural law. He calls it the Tao in his book um, because he's saying this is something that is expressed throughout different cultures. You have, uh, whether it's ancient China or ancient Israel or modern day America, people have just a basic understanding of morality. And like we see that. We see when there's pure evil in the world, people can pretty much agree, hey, this is pure evil. And so his idea is like, let's get on the same page of saying that there, we can objectively say that there is pure evil. There are some things that demand a certain response from us 
that's not something that's subjective. That's not something that uh, we just make up, but it is something ingrained in us. And you said it was a, it's a little hard to understand at first. Is that because of just the older English or the more academic level, or is it more about even just some of the ideas he's talking about? I think uh, it could be like as in the academic context. This was originally a lecture that was given or a series of lectures that was given to a college. Uh, he does have an academic background. He gets into uh, some academic ideas. And so that's where it gets a little bit uh, harder to chew through. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also interesting. There's a fun little title. So it's called The Abolition of Man. But if you look at the the alternative title, it says The Abolition of Man or Reflections on Education with Special Reference to the Teaching of English in the Upper Forms of Schools. I actually reference this book in my book, but I call it by that title just to make it uh, a little bit harder of a reference for people to catch. But <laughs> it, it is, um, yeah, it's it's a little bit tough to chew on, but that's mostly because of the academic context, I think. Yeah. Now, he wrote this mid, mid-20th century. I don't know entirely my history of like academic thought, but is that about the time that postmodernism was on the rise or, was, or did that come a little bit later? Uh, I would say that postmodernism came a little bit earlier, actually. I, I think it started to rise uh, with the advent of Darwin and uh, okay. evolution. People kind of saying, oh, well, maybe humans, if they're evolving, then they can evolve their morals and that can change too. And so that's kind of where it started uh, coming from. And then it grew really popular in probably the early 1900s. You had a lot of progressive thought and that just kind of expanded and expanded. And then in academic thought, I think around the time that Lewis wrote this book is kind of when it really started coming in. And then after that, it has just gotten more and more. That's fascinating. So he, he kind of was uh, sounding the alarm as early as, yes. uh, yeah. as a lot of people might have not been noticing this. And, you know, postmodernism is a huge topic today. It, it's what uh, mm-hmm. it seems that this entire cultural revolution we're going through seems to be based on. And it's just this, uh, we could probably talk in a whole podcast mm-hmm. about that. But yeah. what I what I really want to know, because another book I also haven't read <laughs> is That Hideous Strength. I've read the first two books of the Ransom Trilogy, Out of the Silent Planet, which is uh, basically about going to Mars, and then Paralandra, which is Venus. I have on my shelf That Hideous Strength. So tell me what that book is about, because I know that's connected to the abolition of man, but I don't exactly know how, and I've been wanting to mm-hmm. figure this out. So tell me what that book is about and how it connects. And then later I want to, t- I want to hear about how that connects to the book that you've written. Yeah. That hideous strength. Um, I'm holding it in my hands right now. It is, if you have it on your shelf next to Paralandra and out of the silent planet, it's, oh, it's longer than both of them put together. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's quite something it's hard to, it, it is probably Lewis's hardest novel to get through. Interesting. Um, okay. It, it gets, to be honest, it just gets really slow. It gets really hard to just like get through. I, I think that's a something that people criticize it for, and I think that's a fair criticism. You know, especially if for modern readers who like things moving fast paced. Out of the Silent Planet is pretty fast paced. Paralandra is pretty fast paced. Mm. Uh, when you get to that hideous strength, you open it up, and it's like, okay, they're talking about some college out in the middle of England. I, I don't know, and it just keeps on talking about this college and college and blah blah blah, and it, it's hard to get through. So it takes so a little bit of work to get. It through. takes to get. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But once it gets going, you start seeing things where he just brings in these ideas that he has explored in the abolition of man and uh, some other essays he wrote. He he wrote one called the poison of subjectivism, 
which I think we see quite a bit in that idea strength as well. Uh, you see ideas from your Christianity pulled into this. Um, and he also, he has this preface that he wrote at the beginning. Um, and he says, uh, let me find the right page. He says, this is quote, a tall story about devil devilry, though it has behind it a serious point, which I have tried to make in my abolition of man. Uh, so essentially he's saying right here at the beginning, this is my own fictional interpretation of the abolition of man. And it, it really is, especially once you get to the end, you start seeing some of these ideas come through. It's, it gets a little bit complicated. Like, like mm-hmm. I said, he gets into a lot of academic ideas in the abolition of man. Uh, he talks about magic and science. And we see magic and science come up in that hideous strength. You see, Oh, interesting. I don't think it's a big spoiler, but Merlin just appears out of nowhere. In, oh, wow. That is, a, that, <laughs> that that is strange. <laughs> so, you know, you have this, this science fiction series about traveling to Mars and Venus. And then this third one is like on Earth. Okay. Did so, they go to the moon in this one? No, they don't. Oh, okay. I had that wrong. So um, they just, it, it's all on Earth. And yeah, I, I don't remember any parts being outside of Earth. The heavens kind of come down to Earth, actually. Oh, interesting. Uh, which is okay. fascinating. But then you have Merlin appear out of nowhere. And it's like, what in the world is he doing here? And of course, C.S. Lewis was a big, uh, he, he was big into medieval uh, research and stuff. So that was one of his his huge areas of expertise. So that also explains why Merlin just appears out of nowhere. He brings in these ideas from Arthurian legend into it. But the I think the core of the story is really talking about the abolition of man. And you know, the the title itself, The Abolition of Man, he explores in those essays, you know, what is what makes a human human? Uh what makes man man? Uh, and he talks about how we have the chest. He says the head rules the belly through the chest, uh, and we have become men without chests. Talking about how we've just abandoned objective value, and if you just get rid of reason in, in correlation to responding to certain things in the world, how horrific acts of violence demand a certain response. If you get rid of objective value, how can you say that? And then you just become men without chests. You have nothing to to lay your foundation on. Um, and so that's where you kind of lose your humanity. And so he gets into that a little bit in that hideous strength, um, especially toward the climax of the book. I think you you see the the implications of what happens when you just abandon your own humanity. That's interesting you say that. Uh, just this morning in my inbox, I got um, a newsletter from uh, Bethel McGrew, the real name of uh, Esther O'Reilly is her her pin name. She's been a previous guest on the show. Her essay was about uh, this recent tragedy in the Texas school. And, you know, her essay was really about why do we value life? What, why is there meaning and value to human life? But also what has been devaluing human life? Like when, when you get past all the political debates about gun control, like what, what are we really arguing about here? And a very interesting part of this essay she quotes a uh, a piece by James Mumford from the uh, New Atlantic, and uh, and this author uh, Mumford was seeking treatment for his own mental health, and uh, he basically sort of ran into this wall when he was uh, at this treatment center because um, it was it had this very non judgmental relativist approach, and it really wasn't working for him. And so the essay says uh, it says quote. Next, a psychologist with a flourish ventures an observation. Each of us, he says, has different values. What's more, we often disagree about our values. So he concludes, values are subjective. And then the author goes on to say that this just raised more questions in his mind. 
Uh, he t- talked about this process in, in his own life of his own confidence being kind of beat down. He said, quote, but then I found myself thwarted and that knocked my confidence. My life doesn't feel as though it, it's amounted to much. So now in my own eyes, according to my own perspective, I'm not feeling that I amount to much. I can't see much worth in myself or in my own life. Well, if value is subjective and I'm struggling to behold any worth in my life, who can tell me I'm wrong? Mm-hmm. Uh, so then he says the, the therapist uh, had, had cut off the branch that he was sitting on and basically saying, I am treated by your team as if I have irreplaceable value. When I am feeling worthless, you don't act as if values are subjective. And that's kind of the end of that, that quote there. So yeah, it, it seems like how do you really instill a sense of value in, in a person when from the onset you've told people, well, value itself is subjective, you know, meaning mm-hmm. itself is subjective. And I, I think this really derives from our hyper individualized culture. The whole non-judgmentalism is, is really that that's not even the, the root of it. I think the root of it is this choose your own adventure, mm-hmm. <laughs> choose your own destiny. You're the yeah. captain of your own soul. It, it doesn't seem like this, uh, this person that wrote that piece that Bethel was quoting really ever got any help for his mental health, which is tragic. And I think there are a lot of people today that are just hitting this dead end of how do mm-hmm. I find meaning and value if, if there's no, if there's no foundation that we all share, I, do I have to just invent it out of, you know, out of full cloth? Uh, is, is in, in, and if I've done so, then it's really not real. It's just something I've made up. It sounds like in that hideous strength, the abolition man, that's what Lewis is, is poking at it. It's almost like yes, he was saying, yes. Hey, watch out. And, you know, cause this is going to lead to some bad stuff. And sure enough, I mean, in the last few decades, we've really seen a rise in these kind of, you know, not, not just this, um, these nihilistic, you know, attacks on innocent people, but just nihilism itself. Mm-hmm. It, it seems to have just come from this total lack of meaning. So tell me some other things. What, how else is Lewis like, how else did he address that in his books? Yeah, no, I think that hits it right on the nail. Um, he, he talks about, I mentioned the Tao earlier. He talks about the Tao or the natural law or, uh, the, there's different terms that you can use for it. Essentially, uh, he gives this definition. He says the Tao is the doctrine of objective value. The belief that certain attitudes are really true and others really false to the kind of the thing the universe is and the kind of things we are. Those who know the Tao can hold that to call children delightful or old men venerable is not simply to record a psychological fact about our own parental or filial emotions at the moment, but to recognize a quality which demands a certain response from us, whether we make it or not. Uh, so that is essentially what he's saying is the, the Tao is this doctrine of objective value. It's, it's not saying that the world is subjective and you do you and you can have whatever life you want. He's saying, no, that there, there are some things, mass shootings, that demand a certain response from us and say, that's wrong, that's evil, that's sick, it's disgusting. People know that deep down. I, I think everybody realizes, hey, this is wrong. But you have a problem when you come in and you say, well, you know, it, if you can be wishy-washy on everything, then, then where, do you, where do you get your ground from? Um, and so uh, he, he also brings in this idea about conditioners, uh, which is just a, a fun concept um, in, from a storytelling perspective, right? Because it, it gives you some kind of antagonist to, to write about is this conditioner, these people who want to shape and, uh, twist reality into their own making as, as he's talking about people who reject the Tao, who reject objective value. He says, there's going to be other people who come in and say, we need to 
you know, after we deconstruct morality, after we, you know, tear everything apart, we need to rebuild it. And so he's saying that these these conditioners, as he calls them, come in and trying to make new value, make new uh, things that that people can live by. But he says that at the end of the day, that's going to be pretty much a failure. He says that the rebellion of new ideologies against the Tao is, quote, a rebellion of the branches against the tree. If the rebels could succeed, they would find that they had destroyed themselves. The human mind has no more power of inventing a new value than of imagining a new primary color or indeed of creating a new sun and a new sky for it to move in. So he's saying you can try and get rid of the doctrine of objective value. You can try and get rid of the Tao. You can try and make something new. But at the end of the day, like you're just going to have to be drawing from the old. Um, so that's, that's an interesting uh, concept that he goes into as well. That's fascinating. Now, in that hideous strength, I understand that there is some kind of antagonist called the NICE organization, yes. N-I-C-E, and it's like an acronym. So what? tell me, what does that stand for, mm-hmm. and, and what is that organization, and what do they do? Yeah. So the NICE, the National Institute for Coordinated Experiments, which is a pretty <laughs> nice name if you ask me, <laughs> that they really do represent these conditioners uh, that he talks about in The Abolition of Man. Uh, these are the people who th- this organization is trying to reshape humanity into the way that they want it. Uh, so they have some interesting experiments going on. Um, they, and they control more than just more than just this. It's supposed to be like this academic institution. There's a lot more going behind on on behind the scenes. You've got uh, their hands in the government. They have their hands in the in the newspapers. It's interesting. There's even uh, a section where he talks about how they're uh, writing propaganda from the left and the right, and so like they have their own people trying to push the narratives for both sides and control everything. And uh, they have some really uh, kind of strange uh, experiments going on as well, uh, which just w- really weird. I'll just say that. Okay, I want to zero in on that thing. One thing you just said is that they're pushing propaganda on the left and the right. So there's been a lot of interesting um, research I've followed about these bot farms on social media. You know, Twitter has been a big thing in the news because this Elon Musk is uh, planning to purchase it, but then he kind of pulled back because he found out, wait a minute, there's there's so many bots on here, like you've inflated, overinflated the numbers of how many people are actually using this. And one of the things these um, researchers have found is that these bot farms, these from foreign countries, will pick a very divisive issue to America. So right now it's gun control. Before that, mm-hmm. it was abortion. You know, Before that, yeah. it was vaccines. You know, whatever it is, they will pick a very divisive issue and then they will send out bots to inflame both sides of the issue. Mm-hmm. And, and I, uh, you know, so they will generate all this content. They'll retweet things. They'll comment on other people's posts. They'll try to like cross promote things and, and try to like, get people to sort of uh, collide with the other side of the propaganda and all in a manner of, um, or all for the purpose of just dividing our society from itself. Our social fabric has already been weakening in recent years and decades. So it's not like we can lay all the blame at Russia or China or, or bots or whatever. Mm-hmm. but it, it is interesting to me how they pick these issues and then just try to widen that gap between people. And I think especially with, with people not seeing each other in person, only interacting online where you, you say things online, you wouldn't necessarily say in person and you, you lose a lot of that sense of context. 
So it, it's interesting that Lewis sort of predicted that same thing. And I mean, and that even calls back uh, this present darkness where the uh, this kind of shadowy organization that's trying to influence uh, you know, the local town authorities and try to take over the newspaper and has their hand in real estate. And, you know, and, and it's and it's all driven by this very new age, frankly, uh, just a cult mentality. So there again, it seems like Lewis is uh, is kind of told, warned us about what's going to happen. Yes. So uh, I probably should read this book. And I, I think all of our listeners, if they haven't read it, would probably really benefit from that. I think it was very intuitive and and seeing some problems that were growing because, uh, you know, he starts off the abolition of man talking about textbooks. Um, but his problem isn't, you know, talking about uh, redefining gender or something that drastic. He, he talks about a waterfall and whether or not you can call it sublime. So uh, it's interesting that he, he takes something that's so, it sounds like it shouldn't be that controversial. And he's saying, we've got a problem here. And it's, it's just the beginning of a problem. And as we've seen, like that is just the beginning of a problem. Yeah. It, it, you know, there's this fascination a lot of people have of just unraveling things and just pulling that thread and seeing how far, uh, how much of it they can pull apart. And yeah, you've got to have a stopping point there. Well, let's talk about your book, The Testimony of Calvin Lewis. Right before we started recording, I, I went and listened to episode one. It was really exciting. This is a theatrical podcast. So it's got a full cast, sound effects, and music. But uh, tell us a little bit about the story itself. Like, what is it about? Yeah. So uh, we spent a lot of time talking about the abolition of man. Uh, I think Zach mentioned this at the beginning, but it is basically my fictional interpretation of the abolition of man. Uh, It also draws a lot from uh, Augustine's Confessions, interesting enough. The the main character, even though the, the title is The Testimony of Calvin Lewis, Calvin Lewis is a senator. He's the narrator of the story. Uh, but he's telling the story about August Williams, Augustine, August, you see the correlation there. Mm-hmm. But August Williams is this young World War III veteran, so you know it's set in the future, uh, who's recruited by the Department of Health and Human Services. That was supposed to be not a controversial organization when I began writing this book. And <laughs> now it's like one of the big departments that everybody's paying attention to. Yes. <laughs> uh, I, I think there's even a line in the the first episode talking about, oh, I thought he'd pick a uh, something that sounds a little bit more crazy, like Homeland Security. <laughs> and then I'm like, well, okay. I, I didn't foresee everything that happened in 2020. But anyways, he gets recruited by the HHS to be this trial patient for a new Uberman device, uh, which is a, a VR-like d- headset that you put on your head and allows you to access your memories in this vivid uh, inception-like memoryscape. And so there's a, a therapist at the HHS who's guiding him through this this memoryscape, telling him, you know, these are the things they need to look out for. This, this is how you uh, kind of reprocess your memories. There's also going to be some anomalies that you might encounter in your memoryscape. Um, some some scary things, but don't freak out too much. It's it's not that big of a deal. And so he's he's guiding August uh, through this memoryscape, uh, and he tells them that at the center of his memoryscape, he's going to find this bright glowing object, this weird cube uh, that he calls a psychological tumor, and he says that's that's really like the root of your, your trauma that you've experienced. Um, so he goes into this memory scape. He encounters some strange things. Uh, one of the strange things that he encounters is this man in gray who tells him, you know, that, that therapist at the HHS, you, you can't really trust him. Uh, and so there's, there's some mystery going on about who he can trust this, this strange man in gray who appears in his mind, uh, or this government therapist, who do you trust? Mm. Um, so, uh, there's, 
some conspiracy going through that. Uh, but essentially, the the heart of the story really is drawing from Abolition of Man and Augustine's Confessions, and basically saying that where the world teaches we can destruct, deconstruct morality and condition for ourselves what we deem to be right and wrong, that's that's not the case. Rather, like Lewis and Augustine taught. There is a traditional line of thinking that's rooted in scripture that teaches that the law of God has been written on our hearts, and we can either follow after it as lodestar of our lives, or we can just toss it out, distort it, and be left to the corruption of our own making. That rings very true. Now, you mentioned Augustine or Augustine's Confessions, yeah. uh, depending how you want to pronounce it, tomato, tomato. What are some of the key passages from the Confessions that have really resonated with you and that have inspired the story? There's there's a few different uh, passages that have inspired me. One of the uh, lines that I keep going back to in the story um, is, is talking about man's restlessness. Uh, Augustine says that our hearts are restless until we find rest in God. Uh, so rest is definitely a theme that you see uh, kind of going throughout the, the story and really just how when we are apart from God, our hearts are restless. We're, we're trying to figure out meaning in life and we can't figure it out. Um, so that's one of the, the key lines. Um, there's another scene in the book in Augustine's Confessions where he talks about a pear theft that he did as a child. And, you know, you look at that and you're like, well, you're stealing pears. What's the big deal? Uh, and so I bring that back into uh, the story in kind of a unique way, except since it's based in Texas, I, I use peaches instead of pears. <laughs> and then there's another line that uh, is just, I think this is probably my favorite line from Augustine. He has this prayer and he says, Lord, command whatever you will and will whatever you command, which is just a, a fun line because you have to stop and, and process it. Lord, command whatever you will and will whatever you command. You know, you're, you're asking God to, to tell you what to do, but then you're also trusting him to, to carry that out. I, I do bring that line into the book, uh, but it's also something that has resonated with me because you know, writing this story is something that I felt God leading me to do. And so to see him carry that through is now a testimony that I have. Uh, so I can say the Lord has commanded what he willed and he has willed what he commanded in the past tense. Uh, so that's a, that's a pretty cool thing too. That's awesome. You know, what you said about rest, I feel like our culture has swung between two very opposite extremes in the last few years. Before 2020, I would say we were, we were such a uh, rushed a hyperactive culture uh, that's just going from one thing to the next, barely sleeping, and probably having a lot of our our own, you know, mental health problems just traced to not enough sleep, and just going in a you know life in the fast lane basically. And then COVID hits, and then we're all at home, and we're not driving anywhere, and we're not going anywhere, and we're not doing much, and we're working behind a screen, and then we, you know, we we go from the bed to the couch to the table to the to the desk, to the bed. And pretty soon it's like, well, I don't have to work as much or again, mental health things start happening. And so people are, are working less. They're having more leisure time and binging a lot of Netflix and, and whatever else. And then we've, it's almost like we've gone to the other extreme. I just saw the story recently that uh, one of the major tech companies is trying to get its employees to come back to work in the office. And at first they're like, just come back one day a week. And then and then they kind of ramped it up sort of quickly. It's like, okay, now two days a week, now three days a week. And they, they may have, you know, rushed that a little bit. Uh, and now there's a big revolt from the engineers mm. and employees of this company. And they're like, for all these reasons, we think we should continue to get to work at home. And 
you know, we'll, we'll do one day a week. That's it. There was a big, uh, expose on another big tech company where an engineer was caught on a hidden camera saying, Oh, I basically only work four hours a week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that, that's true of all of us. And, uh, and so it's like, we've gone to this other extreme now of like trying to find rest through, you know, just kind of popcorn entertainment, mm-hmm. um, through just, uh, I, I think in your, your trailer for your, um, your, your theatrical podcast, you said tasteless spectacle. Yes. <laughs> and so, you know, we, we, we don't really know that right balance as a culture with, without Christ. I mean, Christ is our rest. And he said, you know, the Sabbath was made for man. That, that he intends us to have rest, but also he intends a work for us to do. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in Ephesians 2, you know, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, we're saved by grace, not by our works, but also we are created to be God's workmanship. And so we, we don't earn our salvation, but because of our salvation, we have jobs in his kingdom. And, but also because he has accomplished the most important work at all, justification with God, we have complete rest in him. And so I think it's only in Christ we get that balance right of what we're working on for, for whom or why we're working, but also how we rest. But, you know, we've talked about how our culture doesn't really have this foundation of objective morality. I, I think it's also true that we don't have a very firm foundation in rest. And, and I think we mm-hmm. go to these things like entertainment and screens to, to try to fill that gap. So I know you're, you've also tried to address this in your story. So can you talk about that, about this whole idea of tasteless spectacle? Yeah. Um, you know, there, there is plenty of room for blockbusters. I love sitting down and watching a movie with some popcorn, you know, that I was into the whole Marvel thing. I'm getting kind of bored of it now, Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I think there is room, uh, in our life to have some just entertainment to escape Absolutely. and, uh, to to have a little bit of a break from the mundaneness of life. But I think there's also not many stories these days that actually get into any sort of substance. Uh, there's not many stories that actually make you sit down and think about life and think about humanity and think about deeper things rather than just watching explosions um, or, or romance or whatever it is. You know, we we have the the same patterns over and over again. So to to break that with something... Uh, that makes you think a little bit more, I think is, is very important. Now in the, in the story itself, I think when I talk about rest, uh, it's really more in the, the broader sense of the term of restlessness, uh, not so much in resting from your work so much as it is, our hearts are just like anxious and worried and we're not finding fulfillment. Um, and so that's really kind of the, the, more of the themes that I explore, uh, in the testimony, but yeah, you, you definitely nailed on the head. I think there's, um, like, like our culture just swings between uh, wanting to not take any Sabbath and wanting to have rest all the time. And neither extreme is healthy. It is interesting reflecting on uh, working on my book. I've heard it talked about that creating is kind of imitating the creator. Uh, that's something that we do to imitate God. And God created six days and he rested on the seventh. So there's, there's that space where you work and then there's a time to step back and rest from that work. And so having a good balance between that is, is very healthy. Mm-hmm. Now for your, uh, your work at the Texan, the newspaper or the online newspaper, um, you, uh, you cover kind of the politics beat, uh, mm-hmm. the, the local, or I should say the state politics in Texas. And, uh, you, you've done some, uh, you, you've done an internship as well in, in politics, mm-hmm. correct? Yes. So, uh, right before I graduated college, I spent my last semester in Washington, DC, uh, interning on Capitol Hill 
Uh, and then after that, I shortly I got this job at the Texan. Um, but the time in DC was was very fascinating because it was right as I was kind of getting the final bullet points for the story laid out. So it was very good to be up there on Capitol Hill, uh, interning in the Senate, uh, getting this perspective that I could then infuse into the story. Um, the story itself doesn't focus entirely on the political stuff. That's kind of a, a subplot, but it it was still very helpful. That's sort of the atmosphere it's it's happening in. Yes. Um, yeah, and I, I that certainly helps that you've had that exposure to what it really looks like rather than just what you see on TV. Now, I bring that up uh, because, uh, you know, we, we have no shortage of political thrillers today. Mm-hmm. One that uh, my wife and I love to watch is Madam Secretary. That that was just, a, you know, one of those just kind of popcorn, mm-hmm. you know, TV shows. Just it's funny. It's interesting. Um, one that my wife does not like that I I I don't like anymore, I'll say, <laughs> is uh, House of Cards. <laughs> yeah. And of course, the, uh, the, the star of that show, Kevin Spacey, is uh, under a lot of investigation right now, which we don't need to go into. But, you know, that I wanted to like that show because it was kind of mm-hmm. an inter- interest. It was an interesting format of, you know, the main character being the narrator and kind of breaking the fourth wall. And, and sort of giving these uh, Shakespearean sort of soliloquies all the time. But man, that, that show was very nihilistic. Um, yes. You know, there, there's just, there's no truth but power, I think would probably be the theme of that show. And uh, come to find out that seems to be the way that the actor was possibly leading his life, allegedly, whatever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's really no shortage of other shows like that that just have this very cynical view of politics. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm just wondering, are, are these shows reflecting what politics is really like? Is it really that amoral in all these processes and all, when bills get passed and when they're making deals? Is it really just that nihilistic or, or is this just entertainment going a little bit too far? Like what's kind of your perspective on kind of political entertainment right yeah, now? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that there is a lot of cynicism that abounds. Um, I think that there are a lot of sometimes dark and sketchy things that go on in the world of politics, just as there are in uh, academics. Uh, I mean, C.S. Lewis's that hideous strength, you'll see some stuff that's kind of similar in tone. Uh, but that that is something that I think is taken to a bit of an extreme too. There was a line that I had in one of my drafts of the book. I think I ended up cutting it just because it didn't fit how I ended up having the story flow. But there was a line where I have the main character, the, the narrator, talking with another character on Capitol Hill, his chief of staff, and uh, you know they're talking about how the press is just like jumping to this conclusion about some vast conspiracy. And the senator says something to the effect of, you know, everybody talks about these these conspiracies that are going on, but at the end of the day, like nine hundred ninety nine times out of a thousand, it's just a bunch of bubbling fools who have way too big of egos. Um, and they're just stumbling along trying to, to pursue whatever they want. And I think that's, that is really the truth of it. Um, I think in politics, it's just full of a lot of people with a lot of big egos and you have them pursuing stuff for their own glory. It's not that there's some grand, vast conspiracy going on. Uh, they just want what they want a lot of times. Now there's, that's, that's not the, I'd say that's the general rule and there are plenty of exceptions. There are plenty of people in politics who genuinely care about what they're doing um, and aren't doing it just out of some selfish ambition. Uh, but by and large, I, I think that's, that would be bigger uh, than some crazy conspiracies going on. Yeah. 
But the conspiracies well, are fun too. So yes. that's what makes a good story. <laughs> I think my favorite one is that birds are not real, that, that they are just uh, drones sent by the yeah. government to spy <laughs> on us. And uh, they recharge their batteries on the uh, electrical wires, and <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's very—it's a very tongue-in-cheek uh, conspiracy. Yes. But you, you can buy the T-shirts for it, and uh, it, it's yeah. a fun thing to follow. <laughs> I, I, I think I saw the interview with the the person who's kind of pushing that, and you know, they have him on and talking about how it's a conspiracy. And he's like, "It's not a conspiracy; it's real." <laughs> <laughs> Wake up, people! Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but you know your your story is kind of dealing with this conspiracy, this uh, yeah. this Uberman device, and and the, the shadowy people that are trying to use it to manipulate other people, and there's a murder mystery, so it's got a lot of political intrigue. It does, it does. Yeah, so I'm I'm really looking forward to uh, how this plays out now. So episode one and two have been released. Um, mm-hmm. How many episodes are you planning for this uh, theatrical podcast? So right now there are going to be 23 episodes um, that could change depending on how the edits go in the latter half of the the project, um, but it'll probably be 22 or 23 episodes by the, by the time it's all said and done. Uh, they will be released weekly on Tuesdays, so starting with Tuesday, I guess that's the 31st of May, um, is the next episode. Episode 3 will be released then, and then it will just be released weekly after that uh, through uh, probably October. Awesome. Yeah, so as the... Uh... Uh, the day of this uh, episode's release, there will be three episodes of the testimony of Calvin Lewis that you, our listener, can go find. And uh, those are all for free. So, Daniel, where can our listeners find the testimony? Yeah, so if you go to danieljfriend.com forward slash the testimony, uh, that is the homepage for it. Uh, you can also just search the testimony of Calvin Lewis wherever you're listening to podcasts. It's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, all the other little platforms that they have. Uh, or you can just Google it, The Testimony of Calvin Lewis. You'll find it. Awesome. Well, Daniel, thanks so much for coming on the show yeah. today and telling us about this uh, this story that's that's unfolding before our very eyes. And yeah. uh, hopefully the World War Three backdrop of this uh, episode will <laughs> not come true in our lifetime. Yes, of course, there's hopefully. been a lot of talk about that. But, you know, a VR device that lets me go to my memories, uh, that might be kind of cool. Like, it could but, be. Uh, it could be. But we'll see if that's also a good or a bad thing uh, as this story unfolds. Yes, you will. Thanks so much for sharing and uh, coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me on, Zach. Well, that was a lot of fun having Daniel on the show. I hope you go check out his story, The Testimony of Calvin Lewis. Uh, Find it on your favorite podcast apps. And now let's go to our comm station about our previous episode with Mike Naraki. One of the heroines of our Lorehaven Guild, Brielle, had this to say. Quote, Veggie Tales was such a big part of my childhood that though I have no memory of seeing Rack, Shack, and Benny or the toy that saved Christmas, I still know quotes from them. We should really try to get our hands on those missing titles. End quote. Hmm. Perhaps Brielle could be a candidate of the Uberman device to help her recover those memories. And to you, our listener, we would love to know your thoughts on VeggieTales or this new story, The Testimony of Calvin Lewis, or any thoughts you have on related subjects and books, The Abolition of Man, Augustine's Confessions, and That Hideous Strength. Again, these are all books that I need to read myself. They're very much on my to-be-read pile. And if you have read them or you're also in the same boat of hearing about them and you want to read them, wherever you're at, send us your thoughts and comments to podcast at lorehaven.com. Or find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for Lorehaven. Next on Fantastical Truth, we'll get to hear Stephen's full report on the FPEA conference. 
and all the ways that Christian fiction is making inroads into the Florida homeschool community. Meanwhile, whether you are working on Capitol Hill, watching politics on TV, ignoring politics altogether, or diving into your subconscious with an Uberman device, be sure that your own humanity does not get abolished. Stay close to Christ, the cornerstone of our faith. He alone provides the foundation for not only objective morals, but reality itself as we seek and find fantastical truth.